You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 31st of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next half hour, Joe Biden draws the line on sending fighter jets to Ukraine. We'll ask if this line could be crossed at a later date and by anybody else. Then... Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be talking about the first visit by a Greek Prime Minister to Japan in 17 years. Greece's Prime Minister strengthens ties with Japan. We'll assess what's been achieved during his visit to Tokyo. We'll also turn our focus to Paraguay as the country gears up for another election. And it's time to go through the latest business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. All that's coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. US will not send F-16 fighter jets to help Ukraine repel the Russian invasion. When asked by journalists whether he would provide the aircraft, President Joe Biden simply replied, no. Well, Scott Lucas is adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute, University College Dublin and a regular voice here in Monocle 24. Very good afternoon to you, Scott. Very good afternoon, Emma. Now, let's begin with, with the fact that we have to sort of hand this to Ukraine, don't we, to, to ask for absolutely everything that they can to repel mm-hmm. Russia. Well, I mean, Ukraine's the country that's in the firing line, to say the least, fighting for survival. So this goes back into last spring uh, when Kiev began the ask for the battle tanks. And, of course, we had the breakthrough on that last week. And they did ask for jet fighters then. Indeed, last spring, Poland actually said it would provide jet fighters to uh, Ukraine, but as part of an international coalition. And the coalition, you couldn't get that wider support. Well, here we are again. Uh, I think your lead, and, and I don't want to correct your fine journalism, but I think Biden's no is probably actually not quite as definitive as people are saying. It took place at a press gaggle outside the White House. It was one of those questions fired by a reporter. Biden might have said, you know, no to the U.S. directly providing F-16s, but other countries can provide the F-16s and the U.S. can consent to that, which is where we are right now. Uh, because the countries that have made the breakthrough here, if it is a breakthrough on providing the F-16s, happen to be Poland yet again. And interestingly enough, the Netherlands, the first European country to say that it might provide these fighter jets to Kiev very soon. Could you just explain to us what, this, what the, 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 the procedure is in terms of sending F-16s? Because they're made by the U.S. defense contractor Lockheed Martin. So there is an approval that is needed from the US in order for these aircraft to be moved. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I mean, and, and that's similar to when we had the episode with the German Leopard, uh, German made Leopard uh, tanks that Germany had to, under its export licensing, approve this uh, to go ahead. But as I said, this is not a question of whether the US provides or Netherlands or the Poland or the UK. This will be a coordinated effort. So I think if there's enough will amongst the European countries that now is the time to move, the U.S. will give the consent. Uh, And Lockheed Martin, in fact, in another signal, said a few weeks ago that they're ready to ramp up production of F-16s at their plant in Greenville, South Carolina, which was another tip-off that this type of supply, which isn't going to be immediate, it'll take months to arrange, but this type of supply is on the curves. How much would it change Ukraine's position? 
boy, it would be another game changer. Just to put it, you know, bluntly, uh, the tanks are an initial game changer because it finally gives you an advantage on the ground against the mass of the Russian force that has failed to vanquish Ukraine, but still holds lines in the east and in the south. Once you provide air cover on the battlefield uh, for, you know, advanced tanks for other armor, you know, Ukraine can move its infantry and you can tell how significant it would be simply by watching Russians reaction by the the chest thumping and threats that they make, which say, oh, this could never happen or it will be World War III. The Russians know if the F-16s or an alternative like the USA-10 Warthogs are put onto the battlefield, they face a real serious challenge uh, just simply to hold their lines, let alone Vladimir Putin's dream of taking over much of Ukraine. It does go back to this oft-repeated question now, which is how much does this suggest that Ukraine's success in getting rid of the Russian invaders depends on the United States? Depends on the international community, Emma, and the US is part of that, a very important part of it. But the fact is, I'll take you all the way back to last spring. Had it not been for the international community providing the essential uh, economic, financial, and well as military assistance, uh, Ukraine would have collapsed. Uh, this is not to deny that it's been the Ukraine government, the Ukraine military, and Ukrainians who have first and foremost been the resistance to Putin's ambitions. But they did need that international support because they were outnumbered, they were outmatched in terms of Russia's capabilities. Now, here we are a year later, and that question of Ukraine being able to regain its territory, it is a question that this is not just simply a U.S. effort. Uh, it's a European effort as well, and indeed, it's even countries beyond Europe. When you talk about Australia or Japan, who might not provide tanks, might not provide uh, air, uh, aircraft, but they are a part of the sanctions uh, movement against Russia, and they provide essential non-military aid. How much is this um, a decision made by the United States dependent on domestic pressure and the and and the mood and the the appetite that America has to to continue its involvement in the Ukraine defense? I, I really don't think it turns that much on the domestic situation at this point for a couple, well, for a few reasons. The first are there are some squeaky wheels that get grease um, amongst the, the right of the Republican Party. You might remember uh, now House Speaker Kevin McCarthy doing a bit of grandstanding last autumn that Ukraine can't have a blank check. But most of the Republican Party does see this as an essential effort to back Ukraine. There are a few, quote, anti-imperialist, I use that term very loosely, um, both on the right and on the left, who effectively carry water for the Russian line and say, oh, this is all about NATO trying to overrun the Russians. I don't think most Americans buy that. Um, I think the fundamental here is, is that uh, Ukraine has, is seen as being a country defending itself against aggression. It is a country which has vindicated itself in that defense. And so, yes, I, I think that while most Americans will be concerned with issues like the economy, like health care, immigration, abortion, if they do turn their eye to foreign affairs, there is general support that Ukraine should not be allowed to simply uh, languish in terms of Vladimir Putin's insistence 
that he has to press this war no matter how costly it becomes. So let's look elsewhere in terms of the, the other countries that could start to offer the F-16. Um, we've had Poland already express willingness to help Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets. We also have the Ukrainian defence minister in Paris today where it's understood that his conversation with the French President Emmanuel Macron will involve a request or a discussion at least about the provision of F-16 well, fighter jets from France. Does this now shift the balance a little bit more to it becoming more of Europe's war? Well, I, let's play connect the dots here in terms of what is happening. The Ukraine defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, is in Paris in part because uh, France has indicated it might provide Leclerc battle tanks, but it hasn't yet made that commitment. But beyond that, uh, Emmanuel Macron yesterday met the Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte, and of course it was Netherlands that announced last week they will provide F-16s. Now, will the French make a commitment to provide jet fighters? So it's part of you know establishing this coalition that you're seeing here. But again, I just want to correct one phrase you used there. This is not Europe's war. This is not America's war. This is Vladimir Putin's war. Um, I'm very careful to make that distinction because you will see the Kremlin respond to this by saying, this is the West wanting to wage war against Russia. It is not. It is simply the question, specifically, do you help Ukraine survive? And then beyond that, do you help maintain not war, but order? Because Vladimir Putin's challenge beyond Ukraine is to the international order we've had since World War II. And I think that he has gambled and lost. He thought he could break Europe. He could break the U.S. He could break them through getting them to walk away from Ukraine. And instead, I think you see a galvanized Europe and a galvanized U.S., which realizes that amongst all the other challenges we face with the world today, that order is necessary, whether it be through NATO, whether it be through other European institutions or other international coalitions. You mentioned NATO there, finally, finally, Scott. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, that threat that Russia made at the start of the war, which was if you start to supply Ukraine with arms such as let's say tanks fighter jets then it suddenly becomes ukraine it suddenly becomes nato's war and then we we are in a completely different territory what do you think russia's response is going to be if and when an f-16 fighter jet supplied by either a european country or or, or the united states starts to fly over ukrainian airspace well first of all emma when you punch a bully in the nose they shout even louder You have to expect that. And the fact is, Ukraine has been advancing on the battlefield since last autumn, so the bully is worried. Now, specifically, if an F-16 flies over the battlefield, the Russians will try to shoot it down, or the Russians will hope they can down it. And you have to anticipate that. Uh, These will be F-16s that are manned by Ukrainian personnel, not NATO personnel, not American personnel. I think that's important. But beyond that, do I think that Russia will respond by waging war on Europe, as it were, by sending its troops into the Baltic states, by firing a nuclear missile beyond uh, Ukraine? No, I don't think so. I think you always have to prepare for any possibility. But what has happened since the start of this conflict, when Vladimir Putin could not take Kiev within the first few weeks, he thumped his chest and said, don't think about doing this, don't think about doing this, don't think about helping Ukraine because I have nuclear weapons. You have to expect the rhetoric, but that doesn't translate necessarily into Russian action, because at the end of the day, if you think that way, you give Moscow a veto, not only over provision of the F-16s or provision of tanks, you give Moscow a veto over whether Ukraine can defend itself.
Scott Lucas, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing, where the time here in London is just nudging 12 minutes past 12. In a moment, we'll be hearing from our Tokyo Bureau Chief as Greece's Prime Minister is in Japan visiting. Uh, But first, here's Carlotta Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Carlotta. Thanks, Emma. A second nationwide strike has disrupted French electricity production, public transport and schools, as workers protested against the government's plans to make people work longer before retirement. Half of primary school teachers walked off the job, as did oil refinery staff and public broadcasters, which played music instead of news programmes. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen held a telephone call with Czech President-elect Peter Pavel. It's a highly unusual move given the lack of formal ties between their countries and the diplomatic coup for Taipei that is sure to anger China. The two leaders stressed their country's shared values of freedom, democracy and human rights during the 15-minute call. And more than 1,000 flights into or out of the United States have been cancelled due to a severe winter storm, with about half of those coming from Southwest Airlines. The fresh cancellations come as the American aviation sector recovers from a nationwide ground stop imposed by the Federal Aviation Administration over a computer issue. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. Now, Greece's Prime Minister is in Japan, where he's seeking to bolster ties between the two nations and to attract investment. It's the first visit by a Greek leader to Japan in 17 years. Let's cross over now to Tokyo, where Fiona Wilson, Monocle's bureau chief in the city, is standing by. A good evening to you, Fiona. Hi, Emma. So, the first visit by a Greek leader to Japan in 17 years, one does wonder what's taken them so long. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, they've had, you know, warm relations. I think, you know, the reality is that for a long time, Greece has really been seen in, you know, more in China's corner. You know, there's been big Chinese investment um, in Greece. And I think more recently, Greece is maybe looking to, you know, other sources. And I think one of the big purposes of this trip is is economic investment. They really want Japanese investment in Greece, which hasn't really been happening. You look at the figures, you know, Japan has been investing in Europe, but I'm afraid Greece has not been one of the destinations. So that's one of the things the prime minister has been talking about, the fact that Greece is a stable investment partner uh, and a good place for Japan to put its money. This all stems back to what the financial crash of 2008, when when Greece became a, a, a bad investment, didn't it? I mean, is this still the hangover? Yeah, definitely. I think so. And I mean, and in, in this, his uh, speech yesterday, well, speech, you know, he, in press conference, he, he did say, the Greek prime minister, he said, you know, basically things have changed. You know, the Greek economy is growing 5.6% last year, you know, well above the euro average. And he also talked about it, you know, it being a very attractive investment in the eastern Mediterranean. And I think, you know, he's trying to say it, the investment grade is 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 coming back. They're, they're really, you know, it's not what it was. He didn't say that explicitly. But I think he was trying to, to you know, to, to make it clear that, that Greece is a, is a solid investment for Japan. I mean, how close are they anyway in terms of mutual investments and interests? Because they are a well, long way away. But, you know, you have to try and find out where the similarities are, Ireland it, being one of them. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so that was one of the things that came up in the speech. So one of the things that did happen yesterday when uh, Prime Minister Mitsotakis met with uh, Fumio Kishida, the Japanese prime minister, you know, one of the things that happens, they upgraded the relationship. So it's gone from bilateral relations to a strategic relationship. And they talked about there's going to be cooperation in all sorts of areas, political, economic, there's climate, culture, tourism, you know, a lot of different areas. Um, so they found that common ground. And, and in his uh, words, Mitsotakis, Prime Minister Mitsotakis did say, 
he said that we have a lot of common ground and he they talked about of course they talked about ukraine um and and for both countries that it's an issue that yes they're concerned about ukraine but also how it might relate to more local issues that they're dealing with and he talked about we really think you know the north korean missiles firing over japan that's unacceptable just as we have problems with our neighbor Turkey in the Eastern Mediterranean. So there was a certain sort of sense of we believe in rules-based order, you know, the two maritime nations who want, you know, the sea to be controlled by law. And these are the kind of things that Kishida has been saying for ages, but basically in relation to China. So, you know, it was all very uh, friendly and, uh, you know, the, the mood was good. Tell us a little bit about what Japan can either take or learn from this. We've, we've seen recently some rather unfavourable portraits of a, of a country which feels as if somehow it is lagging behind. Now, true or not true, you have to give credit to Greece for being a, the ultimate comeback kid when it comes to the European Union and its place within the economy. Is there anything that Japan will be looking from Greece, looking to, to learn from Greece? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that, that is possible, I think, you know, if you look at the bigger picture with Japan and Kishida, really Japan is looking to broaden its relations globally it doesn't want to be seen as you know we're on the edge of the you know of east asia it wants to be right in the center of global affairs trying to make relations form alliances with with countries all over and i think one of the things that greece potentially is uh, and, and certainly that's how they want to be seen as a bridge to the balkans a bridge between japan nato eastern mediterranean and i think that is something that, that would interest japan i think economically definitely i think you'll be looking at maybe some of the softer aspects like tourism i think they could increase uh, you know definitely culture next year they're celebrating 125 years of diplomatic relations between japan and greece and that's something they talked about so it's not necessarily hard hitting they did talk about you know they said that japan's coast guard training vessel will be will be stopping in in greece when it next goes by things like that i mean they are talking about more sort of military um cooperation how that plays out in practice i'm not clear you know and there was talk a few years ago that greece might buy this uh us2 this remarkable amphibious plane that japan produces shinmeiwa industries produces down in kobe and there was talk that that could be bought by Greece, it's it's ideal for firefighting. And obviously, Greece is dealing with a lot of forest fires. There are many, many areas. And it's interesting, I think probably even in Japan, people hadn't given it that much thought. But it, it's really just by being here, I think it's interesting how much uh, Prime Minister Mitsotakis has really raised the profile of Greece. Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. You're with Monocle 24. Next, we turn to Paraguay. As the country gears up to an election this April, there's plenty happening, from sanctions being imposed on a former president to partnerships between the nation and Brazil. I'm joined now for more by Lucinda Elliott, who's Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent. Very good morning to you, Lucinda. Uh, You are joining us this morning from Buenos Aires, even though we're putting focus into Paraguay. Is that correct? Yes, Emma. Yeah, good morning. Good to have you with us. Um, so I mentioned a moment ago sanctions being po- imposed on a former president. Uh, bring us up to date with that, if you would, please. 
Yeah, so these sanctions actually follow um, the fact that the former president of Paraguay, Horacio Cartes, and the current vice president, they were blacklisted by the US in August uh, over allegations and accusations of corruption. And the question has really been over the weekend, why now? Why have these sanctions been imposed? Some point to the fact that this US investigation has been ongoing, uh, I think, since Trump was president, and the timeline, therefore, has naturally naturally drawn to a close. Um But the sanctions come, as you mentioned at the top of the show, a few months away from a presidential election in Paraguay, which is scheduled for April. And Paraguay is a key U.S. ally. It is one of the last remaining Latin American governments that still recognizes Taiwan over China. And the sanctions are an attempt, perhaps, to highlight the issues in its ally, Paraguay, particularly given Biden has has spoken a lot previously about how money laundering and corruption is a threat to state security. More interestingly, it is having an impact on domestic politics in Paraguay because the current president, Abdo, although part of the same political party as his predecessor, is a fierce rival. And the candidate for the 2023 race was actually handpicked by Carters, who's now been sanctioned and not Abdo. So with this announcement last week, you know, it's dividing the ruling party further. It's giving possibly the current president a real boost and might have an effect on on the vote in a few months time. So let's talk a little bit more about this election in in April. Um, How much do you think the imposition of the sanctions will change the way that things run? Well, I think, I mean, I actually spoke to one of the main presidential contenders for the ruling party, Santiago Peña, last week. Um, He's an ally, as I say, of the former president. And I mean, he said that the accusations are going to have a minimal impact on the average voter, in part because there are more first-hand issues like unemployment, higher costs, and above all, security that are a concern for Paraguayans. I mean, in border towns, with Brazil and elsewhere, there's been an uptick in drug-related crime in recent years, uh, shootings actually of, of MPs, and reducing crime is, is a priority for many. I'd argue that the high level of corruption is invariably linked to that level of crime and to illicit businesses that are allowed to function in Paraguay. And corruption has consistently been one of the top five most pressing issues in previous opinion polls. But Peña said that, you know, that that there have been efforts made to crack down on traffickers, but also wanted to highlight how Paraguay was never embroiled in the region's biggest corruption scandal with Odebrecht, the Brazilian construction firm, and the campes- then basically the ca- campaign message will be very much focused on high levels of unemployment, on the economy. Um, but of course, you know, history is on Peña's side. The Colorado party has governed Paraguay for the best part of something like 60 years. Um, and in municipal elections only fairly recently in 2021, they did pretty well. So he is on a strong footing. But obviously, internationally, these sanctions mean people are actually what hap- uh, watching what happens in April because Paraguay does doesn't get, you know, probably the coverage that it deserves. And when it comes to trying to focus on who they're trying to attract to vote, I mean, you mentioned the idea of unemployment. Jobs are absolutely important, not least because the people who vote in Paraguay, well, it's quite a young population, isn't it? So their priorities may be quite different. Yeah, I mean, listeners might be um, interested to know that the country only has around 7 million people, but the median age is 25, which is actually one of the lowest, I believe, after Bolivia in South America. And roughly 40% of the electorate is actually under the age of 34. The trouble has been that voter turnout among the younger sectors of society is low. I mean, most of those who do vote are over the age of 40. 
still obviously in an employable age, but analysts say that this is partly because the younger generation doesn't really have a personal connection to the years of the dictatorship uh, that ended in, in 1989 in Paraguay. This makes them less likely to have a strong affiliation to either the Colorado Party or the left-wing radical liberal party. And there have been big campaigns, particularly in the municipal elections in 2021, to get them to turn out. We'll have to see how those figures look. But there's a strong two-party system in Paraguay, r- rather like in the United States, with few outsiders getting anywhere. So again, I can see where there's a level of apathy really with the political elite generally. Um, so it'll be interested to see if they can attract um, the younger voters to turn out in April. Monocle's Latin America Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Here's Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. Finally today, let's talk business with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Good afternoon, Ewan. Hi, Emma. Right, let's talk about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. It had lots to say in the last 24 hours, some of which are a surprise, some of which are not a surprise. And even the International Monetary Fund itself says everything this is surprisingly resilient when it comes to the world economy. Is that correct? Yeah, Tuesday, a bit of a struggle, isn't it? So I'm going to bring you some good news today, Emma. The IMF uh, have posted their latest uh, economic forecast. Every quarter they p- pump out these forecasts for the global economy and they now say that GDP will grow by 2.9% this year. That is an upgrade on their last forecast. It's the first time in a year that they've upgraded their forecast. 2.9%, not really a stellar growth rate. And it is actually a slowdown on the 3.4% the world managed uh, last year. But I think there's something of a tonal change here from the International Monetary Fund. They've been talking for months now about the risks of widespread recession. Uh, And that R word uh, didn't appear anywhere near the top of this report. So they are turning a bit less gloomy on the global economy. Uh, They do point out that uh, the fight against inflation is not yet won. And monetary policy is going to still continue to uh, be contractionary at the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England all meeting in the next few days. And we're expecting all of them to raise interest rates again. But we are 
looking like we're getting towards the end of that interest rate raising cycle. And they do point out other downside risks, including uh, China's recovery stalling, although generally, of course, that is a very positive picture for the global economy, China uh, reopening. Risks of the war in Ukraine escalating and also the possibility of debt distress from emerging and developing economies as interest rates go up. Countries sitting on big debt piles and indeed individuals and companies with big debt piles could be in a bit of trouble. So that is something uh, we need to watch. But uh, the US economy, the most important economy, that is looking uh, pretty resilient at the moment. Resilient is what the IMS has been saying, isn't it? And it's not just about the US. It's been talking about um, Europe, demand being resilient there. And also, you mentioned the fact that China's reopening uh, after the zero COVID Mm. strategy had been abandoned. How much has that buoyed things? Yeah, I mean, China's reopening is a a huge deal for the global economy, uh, as you can imagine. China has been responsible for so much of global growth in the past 20 years. In fact, looking at the reports, they say that China and India together will account for about half of all the growth we see in the world over the course of this year. Uh, One economy which I'm afraid the IMF were not so positive about was uh, the UK. Uh, They say that the UK is going to be the only G7 economy to contract this year. They reckon that GDP will be uh, 0.6% lower by the end of 2023 uh, in the UK than it is uh, at the beginning of the year. And that is the the only uh, G7 economy uh, going to be in the red. And that includes Russia? Yeah, and big upgrade to the economic forecast uh, uh, for Russia. Of course, Russia has taken a big hit uh, to its GDP uh, for obvious reasons. All those sanctions have uh, really roiled the economy. But of course, Russia is a very big energy exporter. Despite what we've been trying to do in the West, they're still selling a lot of oil. The oil price has been uh, pretty high over the last year, though it has come down in recent months. And they're still selling gas as well. So Russia has plenty of energy to export. And that is really uh, propping up the economy uh, in that country. Just explain to us a little bit about why it has gone wrong for the UK. Yeah, well, it is three years to the day uh, since the UK left the European Union. And this is certainly a factor in those drab growth figures. Fascinating bit of uh, new analysis by Bloomberg Economics published today. Uh, BE reckon that Brexit is costing the UK uh, £100 billion a year in lost output. That is about 4% of GDP. Now, two of the key reasons are business investment, which has really lagged significantly since we left the European Union, and a shortfall in EU workers uh, contributing to a tight labour market. The findings really chipping away at the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's assertion that Brexit is a huge opportunity that is now starting uh, to be realised. Interesting report this. Uh, Calculating, of course, how much output has been lost due to Brexit is really an impossible task. Uh, The authors say that it is neither easy uh, nor precise. So, of course, lots of people will argue over the details of this report, but there's quite a lot of evidence that uh, output is lower now than it would have been if we'd remained uh, in the European Union. That business investment uh, is pretty clear. That is lower than many other countries, about 9% of GDP uh, compared to a G7 average of about 13%. Uh, and the uh, labour shortages, that is an interesting thing as well. The report suggests there are about 370,000 fewer EU workers in employment in the UK than if we'd stayed in the single market. And they say that uh, scarcity of labour really adds to inflationary pressure uh, in the short term. But I think it's probably fair to say that uh, when we we talk about inflationary pressure at the macro level, that does mean higher wages for people uh, not competing with uh, migrants from the EU. So perhaps 
that is one of the things which people voted leave uh, in order to achieve. The sunny upland. Ewan Potts, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Bloomberg. That's all we have time for for today's briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and also to the producer, Carlotta, Carlotta Rebello. Our researchers, Andre Nicolai Parmentier, and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The briefing's back at the same time tomorrow, but for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> 